It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 365 for October 20th, 2013. This week, Zara Designer Pro X9 includes the kitchen sink. Can Google and Facebook sell your picture and endorsements? In short circuits, Windows 8.1 has finally been released. Whoopee! Lower earnings at Intel in the post-PC era. And with Windows 8.1 out of the way, Microsoft updates its phones. Zara's approach to software development creates a mix-and-match system that includes four applications based on the same underlying environment. But each of these applications is intended for a specific type of user, and various features are available in some components, absent from others. This makes a system that's very easy for users because everything learned in one component can be applied to the others, but it creates a difficult situation for reviewers because so many features are shared from one application to the other. The four are these. Web Designer 9 Premium. Page and Layout Designer 9. Photo and Graphic Designer 9. And Designer Pro X9. Previously, I've reviewed, or at least touched on, Web Designer, Page and Layout Designer, and Photo and Graphic Designer. Now it's time to take a look at Designer Pro X, which contains all of the features from all of the other applications, and a few more, just for good measure. Many of the additional features of Designer Pro X9 are improvements for those who deal with text. The text tool makes it possible to add three types of text. Click on the page and start typing. You'll get what Zara calls basic text. No bounds, the text won't wrap, but pressing enter starts a new line. Create a column by clicking and dragging horizontally on the page and then type. In this case, text will automatically wrap at the edge of the column and you create a column of text. Or you can create a text area by clicking and dragging diagonally that creates a text frame. The frame can be linked to another frame to allow text to flow from one to the other. Now, none of that is new, but it's now possible to create a text frame and then add columns to the frame. This makes the process of creating a multi-column layout on a page a lot easier. Page design programs usually lack basic word processing features, but Designer Pro X9 recreates some of that functionality. When text flows off the bottom of one page or out of one text area, it can automatically create a new page using the previous page's layout specifications and then flow the text onto the new page. I say can because it doesn't have to. It's up to you. When the text exceeds the boundaries of its container, you'll see an overflow arrow at the bottom edge of the text frame. Dragging the arrow to an empty text area will tell Zara to flow the text there, or you can click the area to reveal a menu that includes an option to create a new page. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, I show you an example of a three-column print layout. There's a symbol at the bottom of the left-hand column. It shows the text will be flowed, and the arrow indicates where the text will be flowed to. 
In this case, it goes to the top of the second column, but you may notice that the arrow actually goes to the top of the middle column where there is no text because there's a graphic there, a graphic in front of the text, and the graphic has been set so that it will repel text behind it. One feature that Zara hasn't been able to provide yet is the ability to span multiple columns with a headline. This is something that Ventura Publisher was able to do in the 1990s, but Adobe InDesign didn't add it until just a year or two ago. Zara undoubtedly will have that capability someday. Designer Pro X9 makes it possible to replicate the look and style of a print document on the web without reverting to the creation of a PDF. Now, whether this is a good thing or a bad thing depends on your point of view and how you'd intend to use it. If the goal is to present a document that will print and appear very much like the hard copy document, it's good. If the goal is simply to port your print documents to the web, then I'd have to caution you, and I'll explain why in a moment. First, though, let's take a look at the good points. Designer Pro X9 offers the ability to use a variety of typefaces, either your own installed typefaces, and this depends on how they're licensed, or any of more than 600 Google fonts. When you select a Google font, it will be downloaded and installed automatically. And that process, though, isn't without its challenges. When I tried it earlier with another of the designer applications, that application crashed. The same thing happened this time when I tried to download a three-column layout that used a Google font. Now, the font was installed, and when I opened the template a second time, all was well. On the web, Google Fonts are served by Google's Content Delivery Network. That's good because it takes the load off your server, and it'll also probably be faster than serving the typefaces from your server. If you have graphics in your design, Designer Pro X9 creates both a standard resolution version for the web and a high-resolution version designed for Apple's Retina devices. The most significant difference, though, is the ability to place images anywhere and wrap the text around them. This is not something that's common with HTML. As Zara describes it, and I quote, the document you design in Designer Pro is exactly what all viewers see, with the exact same fonts, word wrapping, and pagination. No plugins or separate readers are required because the pages are created using the latest HTML standard, HTML5. But there is a downside. The sample page I show on the TechBiter Worldwide website is provided by Zara. It shows the print design on the left side and the web design on the right. They match. Exactly. But I added a red box, some arrows, and some numbers to the design on the right. The web, by current definition, is a landscape environment. Print, primarily, is a portrait environment. So pages are tall and screens are wide. Things don't fit when you go from one to the other. That means when you load a portrait page into your browser, you have two options. First is to fit the entire page on the screen. That leaves a lot of blank space on the left and the right, and probably reduces the size of the text so much that it'll be unreadable. The second option is to fit the page width to the screen. That means you start at the top of the left column, scroll down to read that column, scroll up to the top of the second column, scroll down to read it, scroll up to the top of the third column, scroll down to read it. Most people don't like to do this. But, as I said, depending on your intent, this might be a good thing. And if your page is already in landscape mode, it would be a very good thing.
Zara's interface can be a little bit puzzling if you're a new user. Often users spend a lot of time trying to figure out a difficult way to do something only to find out that there's an easy, obvious way that works just fine. Case in point, adding photos to a layout. And this isn't new. But I started with a layout that includes some sample text file. Eight sample photographs, each with a caption, and some explanatory text. Replacing the text is easy. Just select the text tool, click anywhere in a piece of text, select it, and then start typing. Or don't bother to select the text tool, just double-click anywhere on the piece of text. Simple. Now the photos are an awful lot harder. You have to open a file browser, Windows Explorer, or any Explorer replacement that you prefer, find a photo you'd like, and then drag it over the existing sample photo and drop it. That's it. So it really doesn't get a lot easier than that. Rotating an image inside a frame, moving it horizontally or vertically, or making it larger or smaller is just as easy. You'll see the final sample on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Final sample with eight photographs, and creating it took just a few minutes. And by a few minutes, I mean that quite literally. It was less than five minutes start to finish. A lot of programs offer daily tips. When you start the program, you see a tip, as does Zara Designer Pro X9. But in addition to the daily tips, Zara has a robust online presence with instructional videos, galleries where users can show off their work, and the Zara Outsider newsletter. They have tutorials and a support center, too. And after you've completed the application's trial period and you've purchased a license to use the application, be sure to check the Help menu. There you'll undoubtedly find there are some additional files and features just waiting for you to download them. Designer Pro X9 and Web Designer 9 Premium provide support for 64-bit operating systems. Page and Layout Designer and Photo and Graphic Designer do not. The 64-bit versions can take advantage of increased memory. Older 32-bit systems are limited to 4 gigabytes of RAM and can provide only about 3 gigabytes of memory to applications, while 64-bit systems are essentially unlimited, at least by today's standards. Most current generation computers include 64-bit hardware and a 64-bit version of Windows. Note, though, that some photo effects are not available on the 64-bit system. The Photoshop plugins supported by Designer are not available in 64-bit versions, and some of the LiveFX effects are not supported by the 64-bit system. But any new LiveFX functions are 64-bit compatible. The bottom line has to be five cats. As usual, Zara provides more functionality than expected for less than you anticipated paying. At $300 or $200 for upgrades, Zara Designer Pro X9 is the most expensive member of the Zara Designer family. But the application can be used to edit photos, create illustrations, develop websites, and lay out individual and multi-page documents. Besides Zara's cost advantage, there's that usability boost that's a result of maintaining a common interface for each of the application's major functions. Zara's interface does differ from most other applications, but once you've learned it, you know how all the components work. You'll find additional details on Zara's website and a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Here's a question for you. Can Google and Facebook sell your picture and your endorsements? 
Well, in a word, yes. But you can tell them not to. Google says it's going to begin showing users' names, photos, ratings, and comments in its vast advertising network. Facebook has a similar function, and it makes it relatively difficult for users to opt out. Google at least seems to be trying to make that process easier. Possibly there's an underlying question here. The question might be whether users should be concerned, or it might be whether it's ethical. The question of legality seems already to have been answered. Google would use the photos that you shared publicly and words that you've posted publicly. Now, clearly, I'm not an attorney, but the very fact that a person has posted information publicly and without expectation of payment seems to tilt the ethics question in favor of Google. Granted, copyright law technically provides some protection for any work the instant it has been created. Also, granted that different standards exist for commercial speech and personal speech. Perhaps the Supreme Court's decision that corporations are people will reduce or eliminate the distinction between personal and commercial speech, but that's all immaterial to opting out if you want to, and maybe you don't want to. Both Google and Facebook spin these changes as an attempt to offer users better personalized services, and that is true. But the overarching reason for the change is monetary. The problem from users' positions is partially the privacy, partially security, and partially monetary. Product endorsements are often paid for by the sponsor, and those who have posted images or comments about products or services probably have done so without any expectation of payment. To have these words and pictures used by Google and Facebook to make money might be a concern. From my point of view, I have actually two personas. The first is TechBiter Worldwide. Anything I post on the TechBiter Worldwide website at any part of this podcast, any review I write, any image I post, is explicitly covered by the Creative Commons. Creative Commons says you are free to share this work in any manner if you provide appropriate attribution, do not use the work for commercial purposes, and do not create a derivative work based on this work. When a company whose product or service has been reviewed here requests permission to use a quotation from the review with attribution, I always grant it. Now, my other persona is just me, Bill Blinn, and that's the identity that's associated with anything else I post. Occasionally, people ask for permission to reuse something that I've written personally. In general, I grant permission for those uses, too, and generally without restriction. When dealing with posts on the internet, I have always assumed that anything I post in any format at any location, public or private, is essentially a public post. It's a public network, after all. There is something strange about people posting information to a public resource and then expecting privacy. In a way, this reminds me of the military's practice in the 1950s and 1960s, and possibly later, of classifying top-secret Issues of Life magazine. These were magazines that they'd purchased from a newsstand. Once information is generally available, once it's public, you can't stuff it back into a container and claim privacy. So the new policy goes into effect for Google on November 11th, and Google will begin showing shared endorsements on Google Sites and more than 2 million sites that are part of Google's display advertising network. So if you follow a pizza joint on Google+, your photo and your endorsement might appear in online ads for that restaurant. Essentially, this moves word-of-mouth marketing to a new level because we humans do tend to consider recommendations from friends 
as being a lot more valuable and reliable and truthful than paid ads. Facebook was the first to try this approach, and it did so without seeking explicit permission from users. The result? A class-action lawsuit. Google's approach has been to announce the change far enough in advance that users can opt out if they want to. Users who are less than 18 years old will be opted out automatically. And users who have opted out of certain Google Plus features already might find that they are already excluded from this, too. Ratings and reviews posted to Google Plus Local are automatically public, though, and they can be used unless the user opts out. So if you want to know how to opt out, Google makes the process pretty easy. You'll need to navigate through the settings panel to endorsements, and endorsements may or may not currently be on your menu. You'll find a link on the TechBinder Worldwide website that will take you directly to the page where you can opt out. It's a long page of text that explains the procedure from Google's point of view and tells you how much you'll miss if you decide to opt out. Read it if you want to. Essentially, you'll end up at the bottom of the page where you can uncheck the permission box. If you opted out of some functions earlier, the box may already be unchecked. Once you unclick it, you have to click a Save button, and then Google will warn you and ask, Are you sure? When you disable this setting, your friends will be less likely to benefit from your recommendations. For Facebook, the key things to remember are these. You can control individual posts by selecting who is allowed to see them. This is a setting you check or modify every time you post something. Examine the activity log to see what you have already shared. And if you find something that you'd prefer not to share any longer, you can delete it or untag photos that you're in. And you can also ask people to remove anything they may have shared about you that you don't want on the site. The effectiveness of that approach will depend on how conscientious your friends are. And even if you do all this, keep in mind that anything you've posted anywhere on any network, public or private, is probably on a backup drive. Somewhere. So enjoy your illusion of privacy. If you really want privacy, sell the computer and get off the internet. In short circuits, Windows 8.1 has finally been released. Whoopee! Either a lot of people wanted to download the Windows 8.1 update on Thursday, or the same people who designed healthcare.gov also designed the Windows 8.1 update site. A 3.8 gigabyte file should take no more than 40 to 45 minutes to download, an hour at the most. But after an hour, the progress bar was sitting at about 1%. The entire process of updating a notebook computer took nearly five hours. This wasn't a big deal because I was only trying to bring a notebook computer up to the latest version. Windows 8.1 is free for all users of Windows 8. I had already updated a desktop and two notebook computers to Windows 8.1 in September, but because a tablet computer and another notebook computer still had OEM versions of Windows 8, it wasn't possible to install a disk-based version of 8.1 without first formatting the drive. Those updates had to wait until the new version was generally available, and that's what happened on Thursday. 
After the five-hour ordeal with the notebook system, I really wasn't looking forward to the process on the tablet when I started it at 6 a.m. on Friday, but it was a lot less painful. The download completed in slightly less than 30 minutes, just like it should have, and the entire update process took only 72 minutes from start to end. So apparently Microsoft had been able to fix overnight whatever the bottleneck was, or there was nobody up in the morning trying to download it. In any event, good luck trying to download it from the Windows Store if you decide you want it. I've already told you what's new, so you won't hear that again. I'm not even going to badmouth the pundits who insisted that Microsoft return the now useless Start button. To discuss the reduced sales volume of desktop computers, I'd say the tablets are selling like hotcakes, but I've never seen a hotcake that's capable of displaying a website. So maybe tablets are selling like tablets, and desktop system sales are simply down at the time. Microsoft is about to release a new version of the well-regarded but slow-selling Surface tablet. There's not much new on Microsoft's acquisition of Nokia, and Microsoft is still looking for the person who will replace Steve Ballmer. So for this part of the program, I guess that's all there is. Whether this really is the post-PC era or not is open to question, and I personally think it isn't, at least not yet. Desktop systems are still needed for many business applications and for most high-powered video, photo, and audio editing applications. Still, more people will find that what they need to do can be done with a notebook, a tablet, and sometimes even a smartphone. Intel has processors for desktops, for notebooks, and for some tablets but not for phones. Intel used to own the market for central processing units, or CPUs, but now Intel is just a player in the market. Still a very large player, granted, but no longer the one that calls all the shots. Intel remains the world's largest manufacturer of semiconductors, but it can no longer depend on selling much of the hardware that went into computers. So it was with little surprise when this week's quarterly earnings report indicated a smaller figure than in the same period last year. Not a lot lower, but lower is lower. Wall Street doesn't like lower. It's even worse when the company's results are lower than analysts' expectations, but Intel escaped that fate. Yes, the company did turn a small profit, just a little under three measly billion dollars. And it earned only 58 cents per share for shareholders. Analysts had expected 53 cents a share, but Intel lowered its guidance for the fourth quarter. Overall, it's a pretty tough time for hardware manufacturers. So when times are tough for hardware manufacturers, Microsoft starts making tablet computers and buys Nokia, getting into the hardware business. How well will that play out over the next few years? Well, that's uncertain. It is certain, though, that Microsoft phones are due for an upgrade in the next several months. 
Windows Phone Vice President Darren Laybourne says the new models will feature a larger start screen, more customization, and better accessibility. Windows 8 Phone Update 3 phones will begin showing up in the next few months, so that could be before or after the end of the year. I love that term. Windows Phone 8 Update 3 phones. You'd think they could give it a name like Android or something. Laybourne says the company had three primary goals for this version of the phone. First, enable new Windows Phone devices. Second, enhance the platform with new capabilities for current users and partners. And third, improve overall quality. New phones will have 5-inch and 6-inch touch screens. At that size, they're rivaling small tablets, and they might require someone with pockets the size of Captain Kangaroo. Perhaps you remember him. Talking on a phone that large would be somewhat like holding a paperback book up to your ear. But the larger 1080p screens will allow more live tiles. Some of the phones will feature quad-core Qualcomm processors that should improve the screen response time of displays. And they're adding a new driving mode that, in the words of Microsoft, helps you get from point A to point B with fewer distractions. In fact, it is designed to limit notifications on the lock screen, including texts, calls, and quick status alerts until you are safely parked. Of course, a reasonable human being would just stow the phone when driving. But apparently we can't depend on that level of intelligence among drivers. The phones will have improved accessibility features that are intended to make them easier to see and hear, rather like the wolf in grandma clothing in Little Red Riding Hood. So now we know what to look forward to. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.